0: Well, if you open your Bibles or you look on the inside of your corner post, you'll see that this week we're going to go through Micah chapter three, and I'm going to be reading from verse one to Micah chapter four, verse five. Just a word of warning um, as we look at as before I read God's Word. Most of what I'm about to read from God's Word, and this is the challenge, can I say, of expository preaching is we just have to deal with the passage that's in front of us. Most of it is incredibly dark. In fact, it's black as black could be. But it ends on this incredible note of hope. And so what we have here is, if I can put it like this, and if you've ever been married, then you'll know this in particular, When you go to get married, you give your beloved spouse, particularly if you're a man, a beautiful ring to signify all that you promise. And the jewelers are always very, very careful to do something. And that is they always lay a black velvet cloth on the table so that you can see the beauty of what you're about to buy. That's what God's word is going to do for us this morning. Bear with me, as most of it will be black velvet. But there is a diamond at the end. So, Micah chapter 1, starting at verse 1, and this is God's word. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Should you not know justice, you who hate good? And love evil. Who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. Who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces. Who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price and her prophets tell fortunes for money. That yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The Temple Hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's Temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. And peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Again, let's pray. Father, what uh, an awesome word this is from you. For you are an awesome God. You alone dwell in unapproachable light. To come into your presence, Lord, would be like a ground zero of a nuclear bomb. You are holy and pure and perfect in righteousness, and we are not. We are a sinful people, Lord, with unclean lips and devious hearts. Lord, forgive us, cleanse us, renew us have mercy and by your spirit as the prophet Micah has just re- um, announced all those thousands of years ago, may we have the same experience of your Holy Spirit moving within us, conforming us and tra- to your will, transforming us to the likeness of your son. Bless us now as we sit at your feet that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Lord, meet us, each one of us, where we are at. Fill us, we pray. Feed us on your word, for we are hungry to hear your voice. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the National Synod of the Anglican Church of Australia met this week in Melbourne. If you haven't already heard, or as many of you would have known, It resulted in them as a national church being unable to uphold the basic Christian doctrine that marriage should only ever be between a man and a woman. It's a pivotal and I think watershed moment in the history of the Anglican Church in this land. Like many people here, I have been richly blessed by the Ministry of the Anglican Church of Australia. I did my basic ministerial training at Moore Theological College in Sydney. And in New South Wales, I've attended a number of excellent Anglican congregations who discipled me, especially when I was a young Christian. But they have now come to a crucial denominational moment. where those who hold to the truth of God's word need to separate, I think, from those who clearly do not. It's an extremely tragic, but sadly all too common situation. For those of you who don't know, there's three levels in the Anglican church. There's the laity. They all voted in favour of marriage being between a man and a woman. There's the clergy which all voted again overwhelmingly in favor of marriage only ever being between a man and a woman. But then the House of Bishops of which there are 24 in Australia voted 12 to 2 against, or oh, sorry 12 to 10 with two abstaining from marriage only being between a man and a woman. And so it got defeated, 12 to 10, and two didn't have the courage to vote. The rot of a fish always starts at the head. And this is exactly what the book of Micah is talking about. Because in chapter 3, the prophet Micah is commissioned to utter three oracles of judgment against the religious leaders of Israel. First, against rulers who ravish in verses 1 to 4. Second, against prophets who profit in verses 5 to 8. And then finally, against, and please excuse my language here, but I think it's apt, priests who prostitute in verses 9 to 10. Because they do it all and they say, What is only acceptable and will bring in money. All three groups of people, though, are rebuked for failing to live up to their calling to speak God's word. Woe unto you, the Lord Jesus says in Luke's gospel. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. For that is how they treated the false prophets. False prophecy, brothers and sisters, is always popular. God's word and the truth therein is never decided by democratic vote. So, for instance, with the rulers, it's that they are guilty of eating the very people they were supposed to feed. They had become, if you could put it like this, spiritual cannibals. Just stop and notice the graphic language that is being used here because they are, according to God's word through the prophet Micah, acting as cannibals. Micah says, They tear the skin from my people and eat the flesh from their bones. They eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, and break their bones in pieces. One commentator I was reading referred to them as Wolves in shepherds' clothing. Wolves in shepherds' clothing. That is because they were doing the complete and utter opposite of what they were supposed to be doing. They were supposed to be feeding the sheep and instead they were eating them. And it was exactly the same with the prophets. Micah says that if you fed them, then they proclaimed peace to you. But if you didn't, then they would turn around and make war. So they prophesied, or they only prophesied, what would produce for them a prophet. As a result of their unfaithfulness, though, the Lord says that he will take away their divine calling. They will seek the Lord, looking for a word from him, but he will not be found. Just take a look at what the prophet Micah says about himself, in, though, in verse 8. Here's the key. Because in his mercy and grace, the Lord always raises up someone who will preach his word. And often it will be a minority voice, a minority report. Who will, keep, who will in keeping with the work of the Holy Spirit, do something very, very specific In keeping with the work of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Micah says in verse 8, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. This week we had the Tasmanian Assembly where every Presbyterian minister and a representative elder from every congregation of the Presbyterian Church of Tasmania met at St John's just down the road. The special guest speaker this year was a close friend of mine, the Reverend Peter Hastie, who is the principal of the Presbyterian Bible College of Victoria. And he shared with us something that I'll share with all of you. His son... Is a federal politician, the seat of Canning in WA. Andrew Hastie is a son of the manse, but more than that, he's a son of God. He grew up as a Presbyterian minister's son, but he continues to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said this to his father. He said, Dad, I'm sick and tired of Christians coming to me and complaining about the state of our culture. When they themselves, and in particular the leaders of their people, will do nothing to speak out against it themselves. They think that we at the end of the stream of culture can fix things when they themselves should be preaching the gospel, planting churches, and defending God's word. And you know what, brothers and sisters? He's right. He's right. Andrew Hastie was a former captain in the SAS. And he said something which has just stuck with me, which I've never forgotten. Particularly, it's, a, it's a particular rebuke to any leader of God's people. He said, you know, there are very few Christian leaders in Australia which I would be prepared to take into battle with me. Because they're cowards. They won't stick their head above the parapet in case they might get shot at. Truth is never popular. The final thing Micah says, though, is the most damning of them all. Because Israel's priests were themselves guilty of not upholding justice. They judge for a bribe, Micah says. That is, they have become completely corrupt. As one commentator I was reading wrote, pathetically, nations that once had the heritage of Israel's law, like prodigals, have squandered it. In the US, for example, the Supreme Court in its secularism allows the unborn to be murdered and allows blasphemy and smut to foul society. And in today's world, the entertainment media give glory to fools and celebrate vice. Such is our culture now that it is almost beyond parody, isn't it? Where our media devices are completely censored time and time again in case there's disinformation, and yet the mainstream media can't even declare that a man is different from a woman. Unfortunately, all of what he's saying is so true. We are being saturated with anti-God values of the world everywhere we turn, where men and women who view their own personal freedom to do whatever they want to be pretty well the only moral absolute. And like the people of Israel, they scoff and they mock and they pour scorn on anyone who would challenge them about what they are doing. And yet at the same time, to do what Micah says the people of his own day did, In verse 11, and we saw this last week, didn't we? We saw a very similar statement. Surely the Lord won't judge us. God doesn't get angry. Yes, he does. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Have you heard that? You see, they don't believe that they would be judged. Because they were so wealthy materially, they didn't believe anything would change. That things would go on just as they had. But take another look at verse 12. Because this is one of the most important verses in all of the minor prophets, believe it or not. Actually, it's the very centre of the book of the 12. You see, because the book of the 12, I should clarify is actually one long book. The 12 minor prophets are not just like individual books. They're actually one book. And each prophet, you could really say, is actually another chapter in the book. But the book of the 12 is a unit. And if you count up, as the Jews are wont to do, all of the verses starting from Hosea all the way ending in Malachi, the very middle verse is right here. And rather than being a high point or what you might call from a literary point of view, the climax of all of what they had to say, it's what you would refer to as the nadir. That is, it's the very, very lowest point of Israelite history. Verse 12, therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound, overgrown with thickets. Doesn't get any blacker than that, does it? There will be nothing left. Now, once again, this is all pretty negative, isn't it? Don't say I didn't warn you. I mean, chapter 3 is, the only, is only concerned with judgment and culminating with the complete destruction of the temple. And while that's important to hear, judgment is never the last word. There is a diamond about to be revealed. Because with the Lord, there is always hope. There is always hope. As we saw last week, you could be surrounded by literally 185,000 battle-ready Assyrian soldiers who, and you, have been reduced to such level of desperation that you're eating your own children and your own excrement. That's how desperate things have become. That on an earthly human point of view, like the Jews were of the day, it seems absolutely hopeless and God snaps his fingers and they all die in one night. Just in case you didn't miss this, if you weren't here last week, that's recorded in the Bible three times in three different books. It's not just the exodus from Israel, or oh, sorry, from Egypt that Israel experienced that was the great salvation event. it was that. Only God can do that. It was like the Calvary event of the Old Testament. You see, the truth is this: God is the God of second chances and of new beginnings. He's the God of second chances. And of new beginnings. And what we find predicted for us at the start of chapter 4 is, I think, one of the most glorious promises in the whole of the Old Testament. Just when you're in the, the bottom of that pit, that spiritual nadir, God shines the light from above, and you go, wow, all is not lost. It's so glorious, in fact, it's as though God's promises have become supercharged. They have taken on an apocalyptic quality because they are described and filled with all of this, I don't know how to describe it except to say cosmic symbolism. In short, everything that has previously gone wrong is going to be graciously and wonderfully Overturned So let's just slow down for a moment and marvel at the diamond in front of us, okay? Let's take our time to meditate on the theological truths of verses one to five of chapter four. Because they're all about the and this is controversial, but so what? You know my email address. It's all about the millennial reign of Christ the era in church history which we are in right now because now Jesus is king now is 2022 AD Anno Domini the year of our Lord now is the time that Jesus is reigning as king You see, rather than being levelled to the ground and becoming a heap of ruins, in the last days the temple of the Lord will become chief among all of the mountains. Don't make the mistake of understanding this verse in a wooden way, as though it's still referring to the temple building in Jerusalem. It's not. The temple that is being referred to is something much more precious. It's you. It's the church. The body of believers in whom the Lord Jesus Christ now dwells. Is the Lord Jesus Christ not here this morning? You see, not just you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians that if you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. It's not so much a warning against suicide as it is about division. You destroy God's church, God will destroy you. The body of believers is whom the Lord Jesus now dwells by his Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus walks amongst his lampstands here this morning. The Lord Jesus indwells you and me. In the Gospel of John, Jesus predicted that the temple of the Lord would be destroyed and then raised again in three days. He was obviously not talking about the building, he was talking about his own body. Because, but because of Jesus, we are now God's temple in whom now he lives in by his Holy Spirit. He was the temple. He died and rose again. We are now the temple. We will die and rose again. Do you see? And as such, we no longer worship the Lord on any specific mountain. We worship the Lord wherever Christ is preached, wherever, and, and just in case you've missed this, the word Christ is just the is just the Greek word for king. Or let me give you the Hebrew equivalent, Messiah. It still means king. You see, if you think that Jesus is the Christ, it's not that Mary and Joseph were Mary and Joseph Christ. They were Mary and Joseph from you know, some town in obscure Israel. Jesus is the Christ because Jesus is the king. And because Jesus is the king, now is his kingdom extending throughout the earth. And if you're here this morning, if you've sung with us and prayed with us, uh, you have come to the mountain of the Lord. You are hearing the law going out from Zion. You are hearing the truth of what has happened in all of human history. You are seeing the fulfillment of all the ages You are hearing the truth, whereas in the past, the false prophets only prophesied falsehood. And you know what? There's not a Jew, I don't think, amongst us. Because all the peoples are coming. Thankfully, we didn't have to go to Jerusalem this morning to worship Jesus. You think the traffic down the Channel Highway highway is bad? Imagine having to go to Jerusalem only to worship Jesus. I want you to think about this this morning. Look around this room, and you will see people from every nation under heaven. Isn't that incredible? Every nation. He's not just the king of one nation, Jesus is the universal king. Stop and think about this for a moment, friends. You can go to any nation on earth and there will be somebody worshipping Jesus. His kingdom is a universal kingdom. He is the king of the kings and the Lord of all the lords. And rather than her preachers teaching falsehood or not being able to prophesy, the ascended Lord Jesus continues to pour out from heaven where he ascended speaking gifts to his church as well as other gifts. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and did what? Gave gifts to men and women. Gifts of speaking, gifts of serving. You see, now is the time when many nations are coming to the mountain of the Lord to be taught his ways so that they might walk in his righteous paths. Don't get me wrong, you will always find false shepherds too. But now is the day where the Lord is going out from Zion And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so we must always value the faithful preaching of God's word. Don't take it for granted. It's one of the choicest blessings of the Lord through which he builds his church. And I am so grateful to be following in the footsteps of David Jones and Campbell Markham who are just gifts aren't they to his church who have taught you God's word faithfully because rather than her judges perverting justice through the reign of Christ you know what we're able to do now friends we're able to judge between many peoples and to settle disputes for strong nations, isn't that incredible where rather than always seeking self-interest through warfare, we become, like this passage says, peacemakers. There's a wonderful Christian missionary film and book that it's based on. I don't want to show of hands, but I would commend it to you all. It's called The End of the Spear. It's a story of Nat Saint and Jim Elliott. And it tells a story of a tribe of Indians called the Adani in the jungles of Ecuador. You've never heard the story. All those men were killed um, when they went to try to take the gospel to them and their wives stayed and, and brought the gospel to the very tribe that killed them. Now, if it hadn't been for these people bringing the good news of the gospel, here's the really Here's the really crazy thing that the world overlooks. If the missionaries hadn't have come, because, you know, the world wants to say, oh, these missionaries upsetting these idyllic, primitive, noble, savage life. If the missionaries hadn't have come, the Adani said that they today would no longer exist because they were literally killing themselves. They were so consumed with payback when the missionaries came that they were literally wiping each other out. And it was just this relentless and vicious cycle of death and mayhem and destruction. But when they heard about Jesus... They were empowered to forgive, to extend to others the same grace and mercy which they received for themselves. And because of that, the Adani in Ecuador exists today. And so the book is and the film is called, rather poignantly, The End of the Spear. Not that it's the sharp end of the stick, but that there is no more spearing. Isn't that marvellous? Because with the coming of Christ came the end of intertribal warfare. And it's exactly what Micah 4 describes. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, <laughs> they will grow vineyards <laughs> rather than battle war. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. What will they do instead? Well, they'll do this. They'll invite those who were once their enemies to sit under their own vine and fig tree. In short, they will invite others to come and share in the blessings of the gospel. That's what they'll do. But ultimately, now, this all occurred when Israel came back from exile. But ultimately, it's happening now as Jesus reigns upon his throne. I mean, how much more so is that the case now, that we follow the Prince of Peace? You see, all the nations may walk in the name of their gods, But we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. Why? Why? Because through the person and work of Jesus, we have been redeemed. We have been rescued from sin and death and judgment. Amen? Sorry. Amen? Amen. Okay. I know we're Presbyterians, but... As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1... He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus will never let us go. It's all an awesome picture, isn't it, of what the Lord God has planned when he's king, or technically his Messiah, his Christ, whatever you want to call him, Lord comes. The one whose kingdom is described in the book of Daniel, and this should give you tingles, right? In the book of Daniel, his kingdom is described as a little stone, a cornerstone, that when it grows up, it becomes a mountain. Now, I'm not much good at gardening, but I'm pretty sure rocks don't grow. This rock does. Isn't that just not altogether glorious? And can I say, if you're visiting with us this morning... You've come to the mountain of the Lord. You've come to Jesus who sits on his throne. You've come to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who has died to save. Will you not just bow at his feet and worship? Sometimes we can get really disappointed, I know, about the state of Christ's church here on earth we prayed in the prayer meeting this morning for the state of Christ church in wa where andrew hasty was and where campbell now is and i talked to campbell during the week and i said how's it going mate how can we pray for you in your ministry and i'll just give you his summary statement of what the church is like it's not even a statement it's a w- one word mark it's a desert And that's just the Presbyterian Church. Sometimes it's easy to get disappointed by the state of Christ's church here on earth, like what happened with the Anglican Church of Australia this week. But my earnest hope and prayer is that they, like us, might experience revival and renewal. Where the Lord Jesus will pour out his spirit upon that particular denomination and bless the preaching of his word. Because hear this, friends. Hear this as the children come back in. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Because Jesus reigns on his throne. Jesus is the king over all the nations on earth. Because Jesus pours out his spirit. Because Jesus has all authority. You and I can go and make disciples of all nations and it will work. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us this morning through your word. You've spoken to us clearly. You've spoken to us powerfully. And Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to pray that we would respond with the obedience of faith. Lord, may we be like Micah. May we know what it means when he says that I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might. May that be true for each and every one of us here, Lord. As we go from here this morning, may we bear witness. May we bear witness to King Jesus. May we worship him. May we honour him. May we focus on him. May we preach Christ and him crucified. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response to God's word.